0: Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We read all the news, so you don't have to. We've been downloaded now in more than 155 countries across the globe, and we're the top of the UK business charts on iTunes. That's thanks to you downloading, listening, and telling friends. So tell some friends. As always, we're recording up here in Level 39 in London. And as you know, London's the heart of fintech. It really is. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11 FS colleagues, David Breer. David, say hello. Hello. Chris? Hello. Mr. Chris Skinner. And, of course, Jason Bates. Hello. And we have some excellent guests for our analysis of today's news. We have Monty Mumford, writer for The Economist, BBC, Forbes, Fast Company, and, of course, the founder of Mob76. Monty, say hello. Hello. Good to have you with us. It's your radio voice.
1: <laughs> yeah. I felt that. that was a,
0: there's dulcet tones. Uh, we're back with us, we have Megan Kaywood, the Chief Platform Officer at Starling Bank. Megan, say hello. Hello. Good to have you with us once again. And of course, returning from our first ever FinTech Insider episode, we have Sophie Gibbard, the Vice President of European Expansion at Fido. Sophie, good to have you. Hello.
2: It's changed a bit. Been far too since long since the first we had one. About. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: that it's been too long since we had you back. This this show has changed definitely. For, hopefully for the better. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> On with the news. And first up, we've got one in Forbes, written by Monty, who's here with us. What's, what's this story about? It's the 10th anniversary of m and
3: that's a great pitch to, to a journalist. It's just a hook, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a thing, and it's probably a time, it seems that there's a sweet spot going on with all of you guys. I mean, I've been listening to you for the last 20 minutes, and it's like I'm totally out of my depth about what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I'm talking to the people of the future anyway. You know, So I'll probably forget everything about FinTech that I've written about in the last five days Intense. Um, but maybe you can help me keep the memory.
2: Well, it, okay. it definitely feels like, you know, I think the moment in time with regards to sort of MPSHA, and actually it feels like we're definitely at one of those now in, in terms of everything that's happening across Europe, really. So the regulatory change and the everything that we're seeing from a from a technological perspective definitely feels very reminiscent of that, you know, perfect storm. So, you know, I, I kind of see... Loads of opportunities for you know people in the room like starling and and feedall but broader into to actually everything that 's sort of uh, out there as well so it feels like um really you know not wanting to make it sound too aspirational message to start on because we like to keep you quite depressed all the way through this but you know the, the idea that there's this once in a lifetime opportunity for many of these organizations and i I definitely feel like that you know it 's um the best time to be looking at this stuff and doing this stuff, and really it feels like somebody in the mix here will um you know, definitely be making the type of impression that those guys did in Africa.
4: Actually, and give Monty an inspiration for a story later this month because do. I was remembering that. Um Zopa launched well, on that,
2: actually, if, Monty if you want inspiration of writing just go through Chris's back catalog <laughs> basically what I do honestly it's really really easy
4: you're welcome to my online
2: yeah. well, he, he'll send you a message telling you Nick all his ideas anyway so 30th
4: so of March 2005 I remember we hosted at the Financial Services Club Richard Duval one of the co-founders of, of Zopa and they were just launching on the 1st of April good time to launch anything and he was explaining the idea and all of us were going what the hell is he talking about and he eBay for money you know buying and selling loans and putting investments online um, but to me, that marked the first day that I actually encountered fintech because it didn't really exist before that. And that was the first time I heard something that was a radical new concept. And so to me, that's the 12th anniversary of fintech. Well, yeah, OK. Well, my mum was in Africa, actually. I hitchhiked across the Ethiopia into Somaliland,
3: a non-recognized country, in 2010. I was supposed to go down for the World Cup. Fell in love with Ethiopia. I was clearly born there, you know, three million years ago. Blah blah blah. Uh, and then hitched all through Ethiopia into Somaliland, and I ran out of money, you know. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary place where you go into the into the capital, and it's like the Weimar Republic with people with barrows. Like you know, I had no money. I'd run out, you know. Amazing Wi-Fi in the, in the capital. I rang up my mate. <laughs> at had a stall on Spitfields Market and said, I lent you 15 grand, mate, a year ago. I need a grand. I'm mean, in the middle of Africa, I've got no money. Uh, and it was a wire service called Dahab's Hill. And Dahab is Arabic for gold. Um, like Western Union and all that stuff. So he made me back about five minutes. Out. I said, "God, is that, that was easy. You know, I paid $1,000, it was 790 dot quid or whatever. Uh, give us a call back in five minutes to see if you got it. Before I called him back, I got a text message from the operator saying the money's ready, went to this mad shack, gave him the phone with the uh, number or whatever, code, gave me the dollars, you know, and then I took $5 out of that money, Got two big bags of cash <laughs> and a couple of cat twigs, you know, narcotic to chew on. So they were in the back of my pocket. These two big bags of that was my first experience of Jim Yeah, tech, yeah. I,
2: I love that. That whole story started from obviously I'm an Englishman, so I travelled for the World Cup. That was that <laughs> I didn't go. That was a team. I, I loved Africa, so and, and then you
5: did it with narcotics. So there we go. <laughs> That's very <perfect>.
0: appropriate. <laughs> Uh, all right. So next story up, um, we've got one on Business Insider where the uh, German fintech startup Solaris Bank has raised 26.3 million euros and lands a Deutsche Bank exec as their CEO. So um, we did a Berlin takeover. I think it was episode 12 of Fintech Insider, and, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of Solaris guys on there. And. Really, really good, interesting organisation. Uh, what do we think is happening here, Chris? Is this a sign of you know, fintech maturing? I mean,
4: 26 million is a meaty investment for a bank as a platform provider. Yeah, um, and and no, <laughs> in that Atom Bank, when you look at it, it's 2200 million dollars. Um, but having said that, it's all about that if you've got bank in your name, you ha- have a banking license. You've got to have capital. Um, and so, first and foremost, what they're saying here is having the capital to cover their core ratios that are assessed by Baffin in Germany to keep that license. But what's interesting about this move is that you've also got um, Bertelsmann as one of the key Series A investors along with SBI Group in Japan. And a key part of what the strategy is now is to move into Asia. And when you look at what um, SBI Group have done before, um, the Japanese investment firm, they've invested in Ripple, in Kraken, in quite a few other innovative new financial companies. And Solaris, as one of their first European investments, shows that uh, things are moving at a pace. I mean, we like the guys at Slaris as, as a platform. You've got to bear in mind they're only two years old. Their platform has only been live since a year ago, last March. And yet they've already got 16 customers live on the platform in six countries across Europe with 80, 80 staff and now they've got a new Deutsche Bank CEO so they're becoming even more institutionalised yeah uh-huh. and I think that's, that for me is is what it, what's
0: interesting about it is is not that it's 26 million but it's 26 million after they've been around for about 12 months or well, 12 months since they raised their seed round so their seed round was 12 million their series A is 26 million their series B could be you know if, if it continues yeah. on sort of a JCO trajectory, that could be really significant. But, you know, being a bank with a banking license that lets other fintechs use your platform, it's definitely an
1: element of risk there, Jason. The, the thing that stood out for me was the announcement that the agreement means that they will do joint ventures with F- SBI in Asia, where SBI would take 60% stake and Solaris would take a 40% stake. So, you know, it's one thing to grow around Europe. It's one thing to be a Berlin-based European bank as a platform. But now this is going to Asia. This is someone essentially investing in a platform that could be an amazing business where it is, but then also taking it back home, Mm -hmm. saying, great, I've given you the money. Now come and help me build a bank as a platform in Japan. As Sophie's
4: here, FIDO going global.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Like, but it's um, when you go to uh, to countries outside of Europe. Anyway, you don't have the ch- chance. You need to get the banking license. So it's a great way to expand. On the other side, the technology can go anywhere. Like, it's about integrating to other core banking systems, and that's with technology is quite easy. I mean, like, it takes time, but uh, it's something that can be uh, done. So I think for the industry it's a great uh, news event evaluation, I mean, it's showing that there is a momentum, it's also showing that like the organisations are starting understanding what actually we can uh, do, Fidor or Solaris Bank or uh, all the organisations powering people to launch digital banks, really. You know,
4: actually, that may well be the reason why SBI had to be involved with 60% as the banking licence. Yeah, yeah that's, that's super interesting, uh,
0: I think as a, as a general trend as well as, as well as that last piece. Uh, because we've seen that there were two ways to build a bank. There was either take longer and launch a full current account with a full platform behind it, which is um, the approach some banks have taken, or there's the other approach, which is launch on a card first, learn, and then launch to something else. But we've seen in the last week that the card platforms can go down on you and aren't always stable, so that potentially Solaris and Fedor and platforms like that offer these startups another route into the market. Um, and there's Mambu, and there are others as well. Uh, so th- this Mambuops. So man boobs. Selective hearing, Chris. Is just phenomenal boobs. Here we are. But I, I did mention <laughs> this when I spoke to not man boobs, but uh, the, the, but I mentioned the new way of becoming a bank as a platform to uh, Philip and Marco over at Solaris. <popping music> Great. So I'm here with Marco and Philip from Solaris Bank. And Solaris, you guys just raised one heck of a round, uh, 26.3 million euros by the looks of uh, an article here on Business Insider. Marco, can you tell us a little bit about why you went out to the market for that much money and and what your plans are now you've raised that much cash?
7: Yes, this is the the, the round we had to make for a very simple reason, because we want to be in the market for a long time, and we want to really make an impact into banking of the future. And as you know, uh, on the day of the announcement, that was our first birthday. So just within a year, basically, we, we raised our seed round of uh, around twelve million and our A round of, uh, of around twenty-six million, which basically gives gives you an idea uh, which way we have come in just twelve months, and obviously which way we are heading. No, that's
0: really significant. And speaking of where you're heading, you know, what, what does Solaris currently offer? Um, just in a, in a quick summary, and what is it you're going to be able to offer now you've got the funding and, and your growth plans?
7: Well, this is in, the, in the last year um, we have already started on the banking as a platform to really establish that into the market, where we basically um, say to the to the world that we have got a full banking license, so that you don't have to. That with our technology stack, that we can uh, uh, give this to to digital companies, to to fintech companies, even to to banks, and say, okay, let's create products here um, and then have a fast time to market. And that's basically what what is. All about in Solaris Bank, and that on the platform. So that's what we've been building in the, in the last uh, couple of months. Um, we are already live with, with almost 20 partners on our platform, and there will be the same amount coming now in the next weeks. So this is uh, is really now pushing out, and um, and this is. In which areas are we active? One is, is the e-money part, so everything which is around PSD2, e-money, conditional payments, and so on and so forth. The second is lending and savings. And the third one, very interesting as well, that is when it really comes to digital banking, i.e. we are the, the banking partner behind all those fancy fintechs really want to make an impact in B two C world, in the B two uh, in the SME world, where they really want to change banking forever, and they need a strong banking partner, and that's how we established ourselves.
0: Marco, that's super interesting. We've seen uh, in the UK uh, a couple of weeks ago that most of the challenger banks, uh, so Monzo, Lute, uh, Monies, and a few others, had issues with their prepaid card platforms going down, and and that's you know that's what they were. They were prepaid card offerings that eventually they're looking to build their own core banking platform and what you offer with bank as a platform is is an alternative to having a card model you can really be a bank and you guys have a banking license as well which which makes you guys a little bit different so um, talk to me about uh, the fact that you've got yourself as a new ceo as well a former deutsche bank executive uh, you know what is the the ideal customer for solaris bank going forward
7: well, you just, you just basically said that we have, uh, and Chris Skinner has written the, the other day in this blog about 57 banks, or soon-to-be banks, um, because they apply for banking licenses in the UK. That is a number which we will not see um, very soon in continental Europe. My advice is to rather concentrate on building a kick-ass product for the customer and and, and partner with the banking as a platform, and this could, could be us obviously. That's on one side. Uh, when it comes to the products, what is what we are focusing on um, now is as, a, as an extension of this digital banking which I've just uh, talked about Um, we, we have partnered with MasterCard in a in a strategic way that we do not just offer a prepaid card product which is um, which, which has very often uh, been mistaken for okay let's get this fast um, in order to have some kind of, of a card product but at, at the end of the day um, the, the, the card should be able to do much more as just being a prepaid instrument. And cards, by the way, is just the plastic we talk about today. Tomorrow we do not talk about the cards, but via the tokenization about products where, where the card itself disappears, the payment action itself disappears in the, in the actual way of consuming or investing things. Now, and the third part you were you we talking about is Roland. We are very happy to, to get after. Uh, we have uh, taken on over 90 people within the last couple of months. Uh, we are very happy to have a third person uh, within the management board. Because un- until now it has been just Andreas and myself, and now getting a third person on board is extremely helpful for us because you can imagine there's a lot of things we have to take care about now, which we didn't have to take care about a year ago. And this gives us again. The chance for me personally to concentrate again more on the market on the product on rebuilding the perfect platform on one side Andreas making sure that everything is running very smoothly and with the extensive knowledge of of Roland in the financial world in the telecom world because he was in Deutsche Telekom as well uh, in the mobility sector with Mercedes Bank to bring somebody strong on board who has been in the corporate world who has been on the international level and help us really with the expansion that's that's a very good point with the international level because uh, what you
5: also asked uh, Simon is is where we're we heading and okay. with the two new investors SBI group from Japan and um, avato from uh, from Germany/ Europe um, we have two great um, expansion partners basically so uh, avato and and Bertelsmann as a European giant in the back uh, they will definitely help us to um, to be even stronger in the European market and and to you know focus within the next month on our European rollout and then um, in in the future let's say maybe 2018 uh, sbi will definitely help us to enter the asian market as well because they have been working with a lot of fintechs there they have been uh, creating joint ventures with uh, international fintechs bringing them into the asian market and um and that's definitely uh, they're interested in uh, with us and we're definitely very interested in, in
0: doing that with them guys um that's all we've got time for on this news segment today but um, i'm sure we'll hear a lot more from you guys at solaris in the near future congratulations on the raise and speak to you soon
7: thank you very much simon thank you
0: okay so thank you to marco and philip and chris we've seen a lot of this in europe but we're still not seeing much in the u.s i mean could that ever change in the u.s
4: Well, I've been having a go at the Americans for some time now for having an environment that's uh, too fragmented and difficult for launching a new bank because it's at federal and state level. You have to deal with something like 200 different regulators and policymakers to get approvals to do anything on a national basis. And yet what's been interesting is the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, came out with various statements last year that said that they would try and help to create a special national charter for fintech startup banks. And they've now, just in the last week, produced the paper saying how they will evaluate applications from fintech companies to start up a bank at a national level in the US. So they begin by saying, you've got to bear in mind the principles of the OCC, which is to maintain a safe and sound banking system, encourage a national bank to provide fair access to financial services, ensure compliance with laws and regulations, blah, blah, blah evaluating an application, they're going to check the organisers and management have the appropriate skills and experience. And in fact, within that one, they do say explicitly, if you're launching something that's a bells and whistles technology, you've got to show that you've got the technology experience on the board level to support this bells and whistles technology, which is key, Um, because I keep having a go at banks that they're run by bankers, they should be run by FinTech, as in bankers and technologists. evaluating, you've got to have adequate capital, as usual. You've got to have a business plan that articulates a clear path and timeline to profitability. And a key thing in the business plan, which I've not seen in Europe or other markets, although it is there, um, is that you have to demonstrate your plan for financial inclusion. And so you've got to be open and clear about how you will bring on board the unbanked and the underbanked as part of the program, which is an interesting change.
5: Well, it's interesting because when this came out last November, it was right after the venture capitalist firm Andreessen Horowitz had just invested in in a U.S. challenger bank called Cross River Bank. But their entire business model is precedent upon funding these big fintech players like lending club and now the big question is will they continue to maintain this revenue model that they have given that now lending club can pull zopa and they can also get a banking license in the US. Or the good question is, now that Trump's in office, will that shift things, or how is it working? But it's, it's I think, a really interesting time for the US. And interesting to see them also trying to bring over open banking principles, and some from PSD2 as well. So whether it takes a hole and it sticks, and on what timeline it becomes unveiled will be interesting to see. But it's good to see them pushing it forward. And on
0: that last point about timeline, I think it is interesting as well, because this is just one of many regulators, as Chris pointed out, both at state and federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, at federal level, there's already other regulators saying that they Office of the Controller of the Currency has overstepped their mark. They shouldn't have done this. There are many state regulators going. No, we'll never allow this. You won't get state licenses, even if you've got a license from the Office of the Controller of the Currency. So this is like uh, it's a good step, but will we see it go all the way through? And and it's quite different to the uh, to the UK with the Bank of England and the FCA. You know who you're talking to. There's with the with the Bank of England. There's one of two options. You pick one of those two options. You go through that process, and then you get to the FCA. You do this their standard tests, and it's hard, but you kind of know. What your path is. With the U.S., it's like, what is the path?
5: But it's illuminating because if you look at tech startups, typically if they start in Europe, they then scale to the U.S., but if you look at FinTech in particular, the trend is they start in Europe and then they go to Asia, and then over, and it's in no small part I would imagine due to the regulatory burden of trying to expand through all 50 states. I used to work at Zero and in Zero Payroll, it was such a slow-moving process to go through all 50 states. They're still not available in all 50 states, and they launched a year and a half before Zero UK Payroll did. So it's such a long and arduous process to just go through from a regulatory perspective. It's like each state is the version of a banking license just for the UK.
2: You know, the regulators within Europe are very much kind of pushing for competition to sort of increase fairness from a customer's perspective. And actually everything that we're seeing repealed in the US and everything, every reason why we think this will probably not get through is is actually just to protect the
4: the big boys, isn't it? Rather than actually encouraging competition. There's a really interesting thing here about regulatory schizophrenia because the potential regulatory authority have got say um, guidance on using cloud services for banks. And they've got a specific thing in there which is all about the compliance requirements um, if you're outsourcing mission critical services and saying, Basically, if you do so and anything goes wrong, we're going to come down to you like a ton of bricks. So, all the big banks go, We can't outsource anything that's critical, so we've got to keep it in the house and do it all ourselves. And then they come from the other side and say, By the way, you've got to open up everything in an API to a marketplace and bring in all these third parties to steal your data. Um, it kind of doesn't stack up very well. I don't think, I don't think they say quite like that.
0: <laughs> you can see why there's the confusion in the market, though. There is the, there's the enforcement side and then there's the, uh, the kind of the policy side. of of any regulator and banks do typically find themselves caught between that rock and a hard place of like thou shalt not mess up and thou shalt do things this way but also you know we're going to open you up and we're going to make you got to do
1: things newer but don't fall over but do things newer but don't fall over it's it's like light dark light dark you've (laughs) got to think any fintech of significant size in the u.s has to view this as a very small window to potentially get something particularly valuable so it's probably worth applying even if you don't intend to to do it eventually if you're of a big enough size, because how many, how many people are going to get through this? Yeah, throwing some uh, momentum behind it,
0: some numbers behind it, and actually potentially even some lobbying behind it, that now is probably the time to, to try and get that over the line, it's a good point. I think we've been there before
3: a bit, though, with the
0: US, you know, don't
3: underestimate them to get things done. I mean, I remember being seven or eight years ago in Vegas on an escalator texting and just looking at everyone around again, you don't know what this is, do you? <laughs> you know what I mean? This is English, you know. I and mean, it all changed because of American Idol and that, you know, that changed and transformed it. So I wouldn't, that sounds to me like a cut and paste job, absolutely. But the fact that they've done it and they're realizing that they're way behind, you know, I, I wouldn't be so sure that they'll, whatever the federal, state levels of 50
0: licenses, as you said. I'll be watching that. So next story up is one in payments. Um, we've got one with um, Penta. Uh, Penta have been on the show a couple of times before. They're a challenger bank uh, based out of Germany, I believe. And they are kind of very much focused on small and medium enterprises. Uh, so this is small businesses that they're looking at. And uh, they're looking at cherry picking banking services. Uh, so all the things that uh, you might do as a, as a small medium business Rather than doing it just with one bank and only having so many services in there, their idea is that you would have zero integration, so your accounting software would be baked into your bank account. And you might have money transfer services baked into your bank account so that you can pay lower fees for your international transfers than the bank might offer, for example. Really interesting idea. And I spoke to Lav, the co-founder and CEO of Penta. Great. So I'm here with Lav, the CEO and co-founder of Penta, and there was an article this week that we'd been talking about, which was uh, helping SMEs cherry pick banking services.
8: Lav, what does that mean? Hi. Thank you, Simon. So uh, we at Penta believe that in banking, power needs to go back from banks to actual users. So. What we mean by that is that we want to give access to the best fintech products and solutions across the globe. There are many great things that small businesses just don't know enough about. And our job is to put them one in one platform and give it to them at their disposal. So, for example, if you send money abroad, normally the bank would charge a small business around 20 euros pounds per transfer plus 4% on exchange rate. But if you use one of the alternative services, you could pay only a fraction of that. So there are many other examples. So if you use some of the software, like accounting software, then your bank, if you're lucky, will connect to one because they prefer it. But we at Penta believe that the user should choose one, and our job is to connect to those that they use.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And tell us a little bit more about Penta and your journey and uh, how you guys are getting on.
8: So we are uh, are a young team. Um, We started approximately a year ago, and in September, we joined the Startup Bootcamp, which helped us a lot uh, to frame our idea and uh, uh, make it far better, validate our hypothesis. We released first proof of concept early in December. So we connected to the bank, and we started making transactions, made our first user interface. But then from then on, we started... Uh, making contracts first of all with our bank so with solaris bank that will provide us with um, bank accounts and uh, uh, payment gateways and then also with many other partners and we are now in iterations releasing new versions uh, every two three weeks and we plan to start on taking the first customers as early as june july in our data That sounds like great progress, Lav, and um, sounds like cherry-picking banking
0: may be something that comes to the SME sector very, very soon, and there'll be a lot of demand for it. Lav,
8: thank you very much for being with us on Fintech Insider News. Thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, letting me be here and uh, looking forward to share some good news soon.
0: Thank you very much, love. So what do we think in the room about SME banking? It seems like an area of, you know, we've seen Tide in the UK. We've done an episode on it. It was an area of plenty of opportunity. Do we we think we'll see more?
5: Definitely. I think it's a huge opportunity right now. As we look at the self-employed market, it's just growing exponentially. And what they're looking at is by 2020, 40% of the employees in the UK could be self-employed. Those are some of the estimates right now. So as the demand rises, I think you're going to see an increasing need for companies that are having these integrations with Zero and with FX to enable these small businesses and these freelancers and self-employed individuals to have access to a business account, but one that's tailored for them. They don't usually need a full-on business account, and typically business banking right now is a bit cumbersome, as you know. So talking with those from Tide and Penta and others, they're solving a really big need, so it's exciting to see.
4: So, so many other SME financing op- operations coming to the marketplace, really because governments want it, because obviously the more small businesses can grow and expand, the better the economy.
6: Mm-hmm. Echoing on uh, on what Megan is saying, there is also the under address market of startups because, of course, there is self-employed um, growing, but even as a startup, like, I, I mean, I've been talking to so many of them, experiencing what the process to opening an account and providing with a business plan and, like, taking three months to open the bank account, I think it can totally be solved by technology and it has been massively under-addressed by traditional banks up to uh, now, so there is massive room on the market. And even if you look at Europe, It's not only in the UK, in Europe, there there is nothing. So it's really good momentum now.
1: I think there's something really interesting about the gig economy, just as you were saying, because actually small business accounts have traditionally been made for traditional small businesses, not the person who actually wants kind of a hybrid personal business account is earning some money here, earning some money there. How do they do tax? How do they separate the money out? How do they separate their expenses between things? And it's one of those areas where, Personal account doesn't really do it. Small business account is cumbersome and horrible to use and charges. There's there's an interesting market opportunity about the middle ground, somewhere where there isn't a traditional financial product at the moment. Indeed. Yeah,
0: huge gap in the market. And actually, as Megan says, that is a, a growing market. So if there are going to be more people moving into the gig economy, that's definitely, yeah. I haven't seen a product that's live and in market that really meets that need.
5: Because what you see often is what self-employed or small businesses like the micro businesses do is they don't need the full-on clunky commercial banking Absolutely. that they have to pay for. So they actually just end up using their own products personal current account but then they end up with all these mixed transactions and then it's hard to clean them out but then they zero thankfully has built out these awesome api so you can integrate that in really easily so here comes a startup makes it really easy to all of a sudden sync your bank with zero and all of a sudden you market as expense automatically flows into zero and bank rec is even easier than before and that's exactly
1: what I do. so what do you do yeah. if you're a big bank do you build zero do you buy something like it do you because in the end what we're saying i think is that a balance and a statement is only the start for business banking. You know, it's all about cash flow, invoices, expenses, bills to pay, and that actually that's the heart of the business, not your balance at the moment and what your statement is.
6: But I think it depends on who they want to target in the end. Like, do they really want to target self-employed? Maybe not, because here we are talking that self-employed need banks as a commodity, right? Like receiving uh, money, paying, and that's it. But on the market, I think there is a massive opportunity. So again sorry on the startup <laughs> but like picking them as they are baby companies and following them as they grow through partnerships with like uh, lawyers to help them set up accountants content and then like deploy more and more solutions so whether uh, traditional banks want to do it or acquire a company doing it and like being having a startup arm and then like moving the company when it becomes more mature could be a good opportunity as well.
0: Well, we've got to move on, Jason. There's one here from Mastercard that have changed some of the prepaid card programs in France and some of the rules around those. And there's a part here about why have the French authorities implemented these new decrees, Jason? What's going on there? Yeah,
1: this was just a sort of little tidbit that I thought was really interesting in the way that society and in this case, terror attacks, are changing financial services regulation. So these are some guidelines that really state that following the Paris terror attacks in November 2015, the French authorities have been working on tightening national law with respect to prepaid cards. I've heard sort of in the industry that some of the terrorists involved in those attacks Uh, after applying for a wide variety of cards eventually got accepted to a particular scheme that then they use those cards in in financing the uh, the attacks which is obviously horrific um, and has led to suddenly this clampdown and essentially what it means is while there are still gift cards where I can load €250 Euros and sell you a card to use somewhere, and while there's the fully kyc product where I need to have your passport and details and where you live and everything else, there used to be something that sat in the middle, which was a simplified due diligence product. It was limited. There wasn't a lot you could do with it. But it was a an interesting taster, an interesting way of getting customers in. And for low-risk products, it's a really nice sort of lower regulatory hurdle uh, products in order to use. But because they've been misused by, you know, an extremely small number of people, the regulations come in and gone pow, right, that's it. I don't know what you guys think.
6: Absolutely. I think um, it's something that was actually... uh, addressed before uh, by the UK because the ceilings were actually, like since the beginning, lower, but in France there was this EU regulation of up to 2,500 euros, you didn't have to do much due diligence, it was uh, about maybe receiving a transfer from another uh, European account, uh, like just very limited and it just shows that it's a bit risky (laughs) because uh, because it has been possible. Another thing that actually uh, Mastercard didn't push uh, very much on is that now it also address commercial banking and one of uh, the things that i find interesting is that commercial banking business prepaid usually you don't need to do uh, employee due diligence because it's the money of the the company and what the article seems to say is that now it also address that an employee like you need to do the, uh, the due diligence of the employee as well and i think it's something that is really changing
1: but there's a squeeze going on, because on one hand, it's, you know, we have to protect against terrorist financing and money laundering. But on the other hand, we don't have that uh, digital identity that makes, makes it all so easy. So in, in some ways, we're, we're making it harder and harder. Uh, the, the customer journey is getting more and more difficult in order to get the increased security. There's there's a rub. There's a rub.
6: And all the more, by the way, in France, where like the we cannot do the same KYC as we do in uh, in the UK, right? <laughs> it's like not the same journey uh, journey at all. So it's just like probably preventing some nice FinTech to to launch with an easy customer journey. The
0: the European countries are really struggling with this, but I look at say a China or an India that has um, national identity schemes that could very easily, even Estonia, that that have a tool to be able to resolve it. And yet national identity schemes and cards have been rolled out throughout Europe a number of times. And it's not that that nobody's tried to do the identity schemes, it's that nobody's done them well. And actually this (laughs) makes, and then KYC becomes like the Higgs boson of the whole thing—it's like the problem in financial <laughs> services. Like it's—it's it's the keystone. Like if you can get KYC and AML right and make it easy, then the whole industry would change. But it's also by far the hardest problem to do well. It's not having a program to
4: do it; it's doing it well that seems to be. Yeah. I was talking to one of the distributed ledger companies that's focused on AML and KYC, run by someone who's formerly with a large bank's um, head of global compliance and AML. Uh, He said only 2% of the $1.7 trillion per year that's money laundered is tracked and traced. Which is like, what? So I said, send me the evidence, which he did. And uh, I was shocked to find, yeah, it's only 2% of $1.7 trillion that's actually tracked and traced. And his belief is if you can digitalize all of this stuff, then 90% will be tracked and traced. You'll still have stuff in Mm -hmm. paper and cash in the system somewhere. Um, But it is amazing that, you know, everything is so darn difficult. And we've tested it's darn difficult for you know, decades, and yet we've never cracked this problem. And but then, if we cracked the problem, we wouldn't be able to
0: whack the banks quite as hard when they fail, would we? And we'd like a the bank. F- oh, yeah. <laughs> so then, then, having said
1: that, Megan, I see that the Starling API set that you're, you've made available for the uh, hackathon that's coming up includes a, a way of getting customer data back, including name, address, their age. Do you think PSD2 and APIs? Uh, will actually help solve that identity problem.
5: Um, I think it has the opportunity to, but I think it's such a big, hairy problem that just PSD2 on its own and opening up this information won't because still, even once you're able to access the APIs, it's not just everyone can access them. You still have to go through a regulated process. There's still an application. There's still various hurdles that you have to jump through, but there's still more information that you'll need to even glean from that. I do think there's an opportunity for banks being that we've gone through KYC and AML for everyone. So if we want them to be able to log in to TransferWise with their Starlink. ID, then that all of a sudden could be very easy. So it's like the Facebook API, but for banking. So given the right player, someone who's interested in this can take advantage of it. I think there is the opportunity, but it's who does, it, who does it first and who does it really well? I've also had
4: two really good ideas um, about... Don't give them away for free. <laughs> uh, taking notes, taking notes. <laughs> not, not whacking my bank, but um, two really good ideas about how, how to solve digital identity. Because in some ways we come from it from the wrong view, which is from the traditional view of how to onboard customers and KYC. But, you know, my digital identity is for Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And so there's a bank in Brazil that's using that as their method of... Uh, Including other documentation, but that's a key part of onboarding customers to say are you really you know how, how much of a history do you have on, on social media? You've got to show that to us and we've got to really validate that as part of the process and then the second Great idea which I heard just this week actually was the regulator saying that they will do the KYC and they will do the AML They will interview people and see them face to face and they'll do it once and then they'll make that available to any bank that needs to access it thereafter
0: oh, Wow
4: yeah. Well, you think about nearly every single fine that's
0: come out of banks in the past decade, it's always been that you haven't stopped money laundering because your KYC processes weren't good enough. And now the regulators is going to take that on? Really? In one country, I've, uh, they're talking about doing it. Wow, that's huge. That's yeah. absolutely huge. Because there is this like self-reinforcing, the system doesn't work. So the regulators push for better paper processes for people to capture the paper in a better way and show us how your processes with other people, how they capture their paper, will work better so that everybody captures the paper that nobody can see like there's, it's just daft <laughs> it's just utterly stupid it's a paper trail <laughs> <laughs> but it's a paper trail that breaks right so the way it works at the moment is if I'm a bank and I'm relying on a bank in Cambodia I have to go visit them take 20 staff and watch them do their paper trail I never get to see any of their paper trail and if something goes wrong I ask them for a paper trail based on some reference number that we both share and if by some miracle they can find their paper trail and match it to my paper trail then we catch the bad guy but that only works
2: 2% of the time like to, to this is just ridiculous anyway I've got to move on because I I, th- I <laughs> thought at the end of this I, I thought at the end of this one it was going to be and there. For- for a distributed ledger, but, uh... <laughs> And you guys can make your own conclusions. about what answer is.
1: I'm just going to tell you what the problem is. I love the fact that you've now just stopped mentioning blockchain, like, just before you would normally do it. It's like you're
4: just <laughs> stopping, like, how Why blockchain just... inspired?
1: Tantric blockchain, I like it. <laughs> just read blockchain.
0: That's all I'm saying. But we better move on. Because in the independent, Chris, apparently banks are getting bigger, not smaller. Clearly, they've learned nothing from the 2008
1: financial crisis.
4: Especially about the KYC procedures. (laughs) <laughs> this could be the whole episode,
1: just to warn you. Basically, because Chris, no, for those viewers who are listening to this, Chris just brought out
4: his notes.
2: Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm
4: using paper. Yeah.
2: Um, maybe, maybe pause now, get a drink,
4: make yourself comfortable. Exactly. This point, uh, there was more. a reason for using paper, which I'll explain in a minute. Basically, uh, the article was by uh, Satyajit Das, who's a former banker and author of the book Extreme Money and Traders, Guns and Money, which is a fantastic book. I recommend it to everyone if you want to know how money laundering and drugs works. Um, Um, so basically (laughs) (laughs) hands
2: going up in the room
4: He's talking about the fact that um, leading up to the financial crisis and collapse in 2008, all the big banks were getting bigger. We all know that they're too big to fail. And there's a great quote from Mervyn King at the end, a former Bank of England governor, saying that um, it is not in our national interest to have banks that are too big to fail, too big to jail, or simply too big. And yet they've got bigger, and they're getting bigger all the time. Um, there's some stats here, for example, that in the US since the crisis, the sixth largest American banks have actually seen an increase in their control of US assets by 40%. And they now own 70% of all the assets in the American financial system. Um, And there's been an increased concentration as a result of shotgun mergers, like uh, JP Morgan taking over Washington Mutual, and the effect of new capital and liquidity regulations, which actually favor the large banks. Now, the reason for the paper is that I've got the Handelsblatt Spring Journal, which um, is only available as a magazine. You cannot find it online. In these days of uh, modern internets, there's so many magazines being produced by certain journals, like Bloomberg's another one. They had a great one on uh, Women's um, Independence Day, which was only available as a printed version, which I picked up. Do you pay head. extra because of that? Is it like a commemorative edition? Well, well actually, I, I framed them <laughs> on my wall at home because, like, these things no one else can ever get. Um, but in this case, it's talking about the German banking system, which I didn't realize had a massive exposure before 2008 to the global shipping industry. And the shipping industry is a train wreck, well, shipwreck rather. Which is um, because it's completely collapsed in the last decade, and all the German banks are worrying because they hold 90 billion euros of shipping loans, which are not performing, as in they're not being paid back, and they're not getting any interest on that. And we know about the Italian banking system having a problem with non-performing loans. I didn't realise that they've got $349 billion worth. Um, sorry, euros worth of non-performing loans. France has 167 billion euros worth. Spain has 136 billion euros worth. Uh, there's over a trillion euros worth of non-performing loans debt in Europe. And in particular... of all of the assets of European banks are non-performing loans compared to 1.5% of American banks because America cracked down in 2009 on this problem and Europe didn't. And this is a big issue because it really says right now that the banks have been getting bigger and we worry about them being too big to fail. And yet most of the European banks, including banks like Deutsche Bank, probably might fail. Yeah,
0: I think you can see that in the share prices of most yeah. of the
4: European banks that the market knows and
0: this is priced in that there is still a big debt issue out there. There's still a big cost issue and that the regulators all they've done is, is really focus on quantitative easing and, and some of the more stringent
4: bonus type caps but they haven't focused on the structural issue. There's issues. a paragraph in here because I mean Monte di Siena is the one that is a basket case and we all worry about it because it's the oldest bank in the world and yes, the most dangerous bank in the world right now probably. There's a 2016 KPMG report cited in Handelsblatt says that uh, a decade after the financial crisis, Europe's banks still carry a trillion euros worth of non-performing loans, which is three times the number in America. In Italy, where the much-publicized woes of the world's oldest bank, Monte di Siena, have threatened to bring down the entire banking system, a full 15% of their order book is non-performing loans. But that is trivial compared with Greece and Cyprus, where it's 40%. Jesus. Yeah, that that was my reaction because I've not seen this covered in other media. But I, I have spoken to execs
1: who have hinted that they see massive problems, like big banking execs, big banks, do give you that look and say, there are some big problems to come. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I've not seen the stats and not kind of yeah. taking that dive into it. But I think there are a lot of people in the
4: industry who, well, who see this coming. I, I, I've heard the, the dialogue, and, but you kind of wonder, you know, why is it that Europe's banks are always sort of having problems? What's, what's going on here? What's the real issue? And the real issue is that they haven't solved the problem. They haven't attacked the problem because the ECB is trying to keep euros together. I mean, this is a great reason for Brexit. <laughs> like, <laughs> why should we be in this mess? You ask any
0: um, analyst desk, though, and I suspect this is priced in for, for a lot of them. It's just strange that this isn't in the news, given yeah. we're just starting to recover. Why isn't this a mainstream issue?
4: I think it's a very fair question. What's the, uh, what's the thing for UK banks? Uh, it doesn't. um December, no. it, it does give it a figure you can ask. We're fourth in the Non Performing Loans League table. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> <about> only 100 billion <laughs> yeah, sort of euros. Just outside of medals, though. That's yeah. the in the Chambers League, really, we're fourth. Um, yeah, we're 100 billion euros of exposures, but it does give a asterisk on that one saying just in the first quarter.
1: Can we, uh, can we start the 11FS uh, countdown to doomsday clock? For mm. European digital banks or European banks just in general. We have a little clock on the wall moving them a minute closer to midnight after
4: this story. Well uh, yeah, I conclude so, so- conclusion is from KPMG's German partner Marcus Evans saying reversing the profitability of European banks is not a lost cause sorry what, what, is what accent wrong? was that <laughs> 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 <It's not> Germanic <laughs> oh, okay. okay I'll say in English now. <laughs> reversing the profitability of European banks is not a lost cause but it will certainly be a lot of hard work
2: Indeed. It's a tough one, though, to take from KPMG, because surely KPMG have been very close to what has been going on with all those guys giving their role in, in that for a long time, right? So bring it up earlier. Are, <laughs> are you saying auditors <laughs> are in banks' pockets? Uh, not at all.
4: Okay. Maybe moving on.
0: <laughs> Maybe moving on. There's one in the Financial Times um, where Lloyd's are due to transfer 1,900 staff to IBM in an outsourcing deal. What's going on here, David? Is this just something that's been happening for a while, a macro trend, or is there something interesting here?
2: I think this is a pretty, pretty big shift, really, in terms of what they're doing. So this is 1,900 jobs that are moving over to IBM. So this is a 1.3 billion contract that apparently will save... Uh, uh, Lloyd's Banking Group $760 million, which is pretty impressive in terms of what they're doing for me it feels like a really sensible step from Lloyd's and I, I'm not used to saying that that often lately I'll be honest with you but actually it kind of feels like a, a very brave move to try and get in hand, what is clearly a, you know, an IT system that sort of needs a little bit of wrangling. So, you know, I talk about quite a lot, actually, the what is a bank needing to be in the future. And I think at this point, Lloyd's are saying, look, we can't quite get this under control. Therefore, IBM, you guys do IT. Let's move it to IBM and let them sort of figure out how to make it cost effective in terms of what they're doing and, you know, hold those guys very accountable to service levels that that, you know, probably we wouldn't be holding our internal parties to. And then potentially down the line, if if we see that we can start, um, you know, bringing it back in house, really. But it's a good question that clearly Lloyds have, have asked themselves is what do we have to be good at to be a better bank?
1: What I like about this is it's going so against the general narrative. I went out and had a look at a few of the bank one-liners. DNB says, we're not a bank, we're a technology company. BBVA says, we'll be a software company in the future. JP Morgan says, we're a technology company. And this is Lloyd saying, we're not going to be a technology company. We're going to be a bank and focus on the stuff we think we're good at and get a technology company to to do this stuff for us. If IBM really is a technology
0: company anymore, they, they sort of acquire people and, and, and they acquire lots of little technology companies. But I'm in two minds on this one. It feels a bit like a return to the 90s, the good old days of outsourcing, like outsource to HP, all of your, like, And then actually you'll end up losing the specialism. But then at the same time, if you're a large organization and you've got like these aging systems, and you just need to push them into a corner. Maybe this is doing that, but I don't, I don't, don't see it's, this adding specialism. It's-
2: I, I see this in two ways. They're not necessarily outsourcing the systems; they're outsourcing the people. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, in any sense, really. And, and you know, we talk about what your advance is, you know, what's your unfair advantage, like you talk about Jason quite often, but is this about them getting rid of bad technology? Or is this about really the, the potential failings in HR recruitment within IT for the last sort of five, 10 years? So we don't know if this is bad tech or bad people. And what they're doing is saying, IBM, you've got good tech and good people, you, you figure it out, and then we'll, we'll sort of um, insource it later down the line. This
1: is either amazingly good or horrifically bad. Uh, and we just can't tell from the story, because in some ways, this could be a two-speed IT bit where different parts of the organization are taking different bits. It doesn't mean that it's not a small team sport. It could be that small teams of IBM specialists together with a couple of people from the bank are working on a whole, s- Simon's pulling a face at me, but yeah. it's, it's true. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. Absolutely. In the, on the, worst, the worst possible scenario is this is just a big cost-cutting exercise that adds additional layers between the business and technology and the customer slows everything down but in the short term reduces quarter on quarter costs because that's a bad road to go down. Uh, bear in mind I used to work for an outsourcer to banks who also outsourced a lot of what they do to a
0: certain large technology vendor and so outsourcing the outsourcers outsourcing is something I have a lot of experience with in the of the culture and I don't think it improves anything. Like. It, i just i don't feel good about this I, I i hope they do well i can see what they're trying to do i see the macro trend for pushing um, certain things out of the organization but i ju- i'm just not so sure on this one the stuff they're doing in quantum computing this the research they do around memory the stuff they're doing that is really leading edge around ai is incredible as an outsourcer though this feels like this is bread and butter not so great but i'm happy to be wrong about this and would love to be time for a quick sponsorship break
1: critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: Thank you very much to our sponsors. And next story up, Jason, there's one here in City AM saying the digital challenger bank Starling is launching in beta, but I, I think we should throw this one to Megan first.
5: Yeah. So Starling Bank, one of the leading UK challenger banks, mobile only, mobile first, has launched their beta. So... Technically, last July, we got our banking license with restrictions, so then we launched. We started having users on the platform um, introduce MasterCard debit cards. We rolled out faster payments, but today this really unveils the next step, which is opening up to a wider audience, which is something that we're really, really excited about. So we've launched that. Yesterday, we also announced our partnership with TransferWise. So, They will be offering our foreign exchange um, from within the app. And then we're also having, um, we were chatting about uh, the APIs and the platform um, launching soon too with the hackathon. So it's all happening right now. It's a very exciting time.
1: Obviously, these products develop and iterate as they go. And especially in betas, you often start with a smaller group of set of functionality and expand. But obviously with a current account, you've got overdraft lending, direct debits, faster payments, account numbers and sort codes. Is that all available from the start or do you build stuff on as you go?
5: Yeah, so that has been available from the start. We've still been working in agile, continuous delivery, releasing daily, but it's been to a small subset of alpha users. So now we're going to keep adding on to that. That's all available today, all of the real-time notifications. Having a real-time balance seems like something we probably take for granted banks now, but it's actually a very big differentiator from what banks offer today. So all of that is there um, already. And then we have a few big announcements coming up uh, with new additional features and mobile wallets and payment schemes and all the the sorts of things that you would expect uh, coming soon as well.
1: That sounds amazing. That sounds like I could move my HSBC Barclays account across to you and run my entire current account banking from a fintech bank.
5: Exactly. So we took the approach of building out the full current account with a full banking license rather than starting with a a prepaid card intentionally because we wanted to focus all of our efforts on doing that and doing that extremely well. Um, So now our users can go ahead and set up, they can move across their accounts, and they can use this like they would any other bank. We have this ability to not only focus on building out this best-in-class current account, but we're also integrating in TransferWise and others to enable our customers to also access those best-in-class, lower-cost fintechs in the market as well.
0: What I love about this is, is the promise of that sort of API banking becoming real
4: already. And it's what everybody wanted from PSD too, but the challenger banks are doing
0: it.
5: Yeah. Bear in mind
4: that Bank's already out, out of the gate in the UK, How, how's your UK bank doing?
6: Yeah, it's going uh, well. Keeping on growing customer base, we'll be deploying quite new features. Um, Are you
4: worried about years? these new, these new challenges?
6: I think it's a different proposition. Like we have, of course, mobile banking, but we have also the uh, the website as well. We have the focus on the community, so I don't think it's exactly the same target market. So I think there is room also uh, on the market uh, like uh, for new people um, when uh, one of the things I, I really believe is that UK market has been a bit different than other okay. European countries so because there there was a lot of online banking already in the 2000s in like France, in, uh, in Germany even in uh, Italy like in the UK when well, there was first direct but like it seems that the UK is just jumping uh, directly onto uh, mobile banking but this online banking hasn't really be addressed. So I think there is room on the market.
1: So obviously with CMA remedies and all the PSD2 compliance, uh, there'll be a registry of, of businesses, of fintechs, of corporations that will be allowed to get into the whole open banking side. Yeah. How are you managing that in the meantime?
5: Yeah. Yeah. So basically what we've done is we've built out a way for um, fintechs to come in and they, or fintech developers, whoever, to come in, access the API. We've built out a sandbox that they can access to build their app out in. When they want to apply to actually access customers' data, there's five different tiers. So starting from just very basic read-only all the way up to making international payments. So. What you have to do is basically select what level of access you want. Then you have to go through an application process with us, demigrate that. We will do our own due diligence in the interim to make sure that you're maintaining the security and integrity of the system. And then once spring 2018 rolls around, our lives will get a lot easier because the government, hopefully, as they say, will have done that for us and they'll have a registry of people that once they type the box, then we'll give them access to the APIs.
1: Hmm.
2: It's interesting. You're you're sort of pushing ahead of that to a certain degree in terms of, defining what that process should be. I wonder, uh, for those regulators who haven't quite defined that, that that process, they might be watching what you're doing, eh?
5: Yeah, well, I hope so. And honestly, what's interesting is what Challenger banks are doing, what we're doing, what we're doing with APIs, isn't necessarily new to tech, it's just new to banking. But I think there's a lot of different industries you can look at who've really mastered APIs and developer platforms. And this process isn't necessarily novel. I wish we could take full credit for having thought of everything that we we're bringing to the developer experience. But it's just the pace of innovation technology, and that's what we're excited to bring mm. to banking.
2: Well, I was always really sort of, um, I, I love the positioning with zero actually, where, where you were before, and the mm-hmm. idea that... You know, we do these things, we expose these APIs because some other people are better at this stuff than we are. So that's yeah. a great trend to be seeing coming in Starling 100%. as well.
5: 100%. Yeah, because our thought is we want to be the world's best current account. That's what we're going for, but that takes a lot of time. We don't also need to be the world's best mortgage and the world's best insurance. Instead, other people have spent a lot of time already trying to do that exceptionally well.
4: Chris, Ex- what are your thoughts? I was just thinking that um, what's great about Hearing about Starling and Monzo and other banks is that um, and Fido is that um, it's not creating faster horses, which is what all the incumbent banks are trying to do. Which is when they digitalize they're making a faster version of what they did before. And I saw two great examples um, recently. I, I remember. At a conference one of the bankers saying i fear the day that a bank launches sponsored by google adverts and i've actually (laughs) encountered one this week that is in that model and basically if you want to make a payment um and it's not not necessarily transfer wise but you know foreign exchange says the fee for this will be five cents but if you watch this video it's free and the bank doesn't have any charges they they still get their five cents but from the vodafone or whoever is displaying the advert which is a fantastic idea super
0: interesting point the other one
4: was capital on tap (laughs) <laughs> which is, um, I, I just o- I opened an account with them actually, it's going back to small business funding, which is um, it's £149 to, to get the card, and the card gives you instant credit. Um, they, they make the decision within two hours, so I've got £8,000 worth of credit available. Uh, they make their money because you download um, onto the card an amount up to £8,000, and then they charge you interest at that very low interest. But again, it's a different way of thinking, which mm-hmm. is yeah. as a small business, um, it's, like, it's, it's almost like, covering you for those times when you don't have enough credit in the account, which for a lot of startups and small businesses, it's a fantastic idea. Yeah.
1: It's also bizarrely sort of reversed to how most banks think about the business model, which is uh, how am I making money now and how will that change, rather than how are digital business models working? Ad-related, subscription-related, freemium-premium, you know, we've been talking to and a few 76% people. of bankers don't think they have to change their
4: business model for <laughs> <laughs> digital. There you
1: go. And that business model
0: point is really, really key. Five years ago, it was all over the press that data is the new oil. And actually, I think that's become true. If you look at who the biggest companies were in the world in 2015 compared to 2005, you'll see that in 2005, it was all oil companies. 2015 they're all technology companies and most of them are either ad supported or they're selling technology devices and on some level you hear a lot of this uh, innovation theater from large banks well we have an app too as Jason says my bank has an app didn't you know and, but that's not having a digital business model that's having an app and there's a giant gulf between those two points anyway we could we could talk about this forever I'm sure um, but we do need to move on yeah. next story up is this really strange one on Quartz about the influence of uber ratings is about to be felt in the whole Always
1: of the world's largest banks, which feels a bit black mirror. Jason, what's, what's <laughs> going on here? It brings out that that thing with people about ratings. You know, obviously with Uber, you can rate your driver, and it seems all very well and good until the driver's rating you. You're rating the driver, and suddenly you're spiraling into this a fake smile, oh, I'm being super nice, Rate me and you can rate you and all of this kind of stuff. And we were talking about an episode of Black Mirror, which if you haven't seen it, is an amazing drama. Uh, first started in the UK, there is now a US version where they take sort of technology to its extreme. What would a trend look like? So series three, episode one's called Nosedive about a woman desperate to boost her social media score by going to a more popular friend's wedding. Uh, and it's just a great example. And I sincerely hope that the people implementing this new ratings thing have watched this. Jason showed me the black
2: mirror on the website, but it's got a rating.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
2: it does get rather meta in there, doesn't it? But I think the, the really interesting thing on this one is it, like it works well in Uber because actually there's sort of a, I'm exchanging some money for a service and how good was I as a customer to how good was the provider in terms of where you're at? You know, the hierarchy within financial services organizations surely is going to screw this one up really quickly. It's like I have a meeting with the senior guy and the head of IT. I'll be damned if I'm one-starring that guy, no matter how (laughs) much of a dick he is, because it will be like career suicide, right? So, you know, I kind of feel like there's there's sort of nuances in this process that actually make it really, really difficult to implement. You know, unless there's some ranking, and my mind sort of went to, Your rating really depends on how much you care that that person rated you a thing, which oddly sort of mirrors the Black Mirror episode really, really nicely. So definitely go and watch it. But, you know, I was like, does like clout come into this somewhere? Because you kind of have to have some sort of credibility metric. But I think this one's going to be really, really, really painful.
3: I think they should be looking at rating their customers in a different way. This is, I mean, this is all very well and all that stuff. We went to India for a couple of years. Why have a five year old son? you know, a house, etc. I had a quarter of a million quid in the bank. Uh, had a great time for two years. Wife worked for the UKTI. I was on a big London salary, Riley Ra. Uh, we came back, and we couldn't get a mortgage. We have a quarter of a million quid in the bank because we were 40s and, and all that stuff. We should have been top of the list for innovation, giving up careers, giving our son a different education, coming back with great, refreshed creativity. Obviously, I'm talking about myself, but it it does seem a bit stupid where they just give mortgages to young couples that are going to be with them for forty years and and all that. And I just wonder, just as a question to all of you, really, is there anything out there that an algorithm? I mean, all I think are doing a good thing in mortgages in the UK. Is there a way out there of, of, you know, real
2: proper data on people, not just their age and their? Definitely isn't. I think that's that's a big problem. You know, credit credit scoring is is kind of almost like you have to be in the cycle of debt to have a good rating to, to really sort of appear on that, and and that's a you know definitely a, a big problem. Actually, it's one of the things that Impetra actually did quite interestingly in in Africa is is building kind of that alternative yeah. way of gaining that credibility and actually gaining a track record of repaying loans. But in the UK, it seems. Yeah other than, you know, really fun adverts coming from ClearScore and whatnot, then it feels like there's uh, not really the, the change that we need in, uh, in that market.
5: Well, there are a few really interesting emerging startups though that are trying to tackle this issue. And what they're looking at is how can we give someone a credit score but based off of, do you have a college degree? What is your social network like? It'll analyze the number and the diversity of contacts you have on LinkedIn. But they're looking at, are there other measures to figure out whether this person is capable of paying back a mortgage other than your existing credit score, because it's hard, because there's a lot of really good use cases where this is difficult currently.
4: In Cybos 2009, when Inner Tribe launched, they had a number of workshops around um, coming up with ideas and the idea of my group was to create a trust score based on behavioral metrics in social media along with your financial history. And that way you can actually give uh, a student a credit um, rate, rating purely based on their social media behaviours and their influence in social media. And those factors should come into account, but at the moment, hardly any bank's doing it. But that's
1: the way that banks will have to go and will be incentivized to go. Because as a lender, every percentage point you can increase in terms of make, becoming a, a better judge of whether someone will pay it back or default on it means that your profits go up. So yes, currently, you might go out and ask an external agency, what uh, what products has Jason had in the past? Oh, he's got a mobile phone contract, and he took out a loan a few years ago. He has a mortgage. He has this, that, and the other. But compared to knowing where I spend my day, what I spend my money on, where I live, where I work, and 1,000, <laughs> 10,000 different data points, the ability to create new models of risk, based not on whether you've had a loan and what your one point of salary is, you know, creates something very much more rich, but needs training. And so currently the big banks don't have the ability to access, aggregate, process that data into great risk models. And so you'll see new lenders and new startups and new challenger banks come along that will be training their models until it beats the previous model, and the previous, you know, credit scoring, and then they'll, they'll be away. Yeah, I would just, I mean, add to, like, Starling, you know,
3: one of the questions, I mean, I, I've, I've now made money, and I'm never going to see a fucking bank again, you know, that's, that's it, <laughs> fuck them, you know, <laughs> uh, after that experience a few years ago. But one of the questions that was always asked was, how long have you been with your bank? You know, and that was always quite good for me because I've been with them for 20 years or whatever, so well, the rest of it can be covered up, (laughs) you know, living differently. But that would be a question for Starling, you know. How long have you been with your bank? Like a week? (laughs) I've just moved to Starling. What's their attitude going to be?
5: Well, I think that there is some advantage of having, one, a number of challenger banks that are coming to market right now. So kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, so that helps. There's also the fact that, As well as I imagine a number of other startups, like we had mentioned Monza that has the prepaid card, but one of the things that we're looking to do is make it meaningful at each step of the journey to use Starling even before switching your entire account. So that way you can get started, you can try it, you don't have to switch over, make it your full current account. So that way if you want to use it in tandem with your existing account for purpose of applying to a mortgage or something, yeah. then that's fine. And well, we understand that as well. And so there's a certain tactics with getting people to fully switch over that you, know, you can kind of help them ease them into it with giving them meaningful um, uh, steps along the way.
6: Yeah. Yeah, leveraging on Fedora experience it's exactly what happened when we launched back in 2009 like we never uh, put as a thesis that we would be a primary uh, bank account, we never pushed that in the marketing, it's more about you try out, you uh, you see and then if you like uh, it then you switch and I think now the data is 50% of uh, our clients are using us as primary banking accounts but it has never been the main thesis so like at this stage, on top of that, account switching, was not really existing now, it's coming up on uh, on the market. But like, it's about building the trust step by step with the clients, showing the difference through the technology, but also customer service. We see that at uh, Fedor, it's also a lot on customer service.
2: I think that's definitely a big part of it. And actually, the technological approaches to onboarding customers today are so different in the challenges that we're seeing coming through. So you know, the idea that within a big bank, it's kind of you've got a, a person who's a gatekeeper deeming you worthy or not to, to sort of get into it. It feels like it's very archaic in terms of the the models that you would expect from technology players. So it kind of feels like anybody can download an app in Monzo's case or getting on a, a, a list to kind of start getting accounts and things. Whereas actually and you progressively open up things to them. You know, there's no one-size-fits-all risk model in, in this process. So, you know, I think it's um, definitely kind of evolving in many places. So speaking of that, um, I worked quite closely when I was
0: at the Barclays Accelerator with Air Air School. Um, and those guys, um, Anish Varma and the guys down at Air, are absolutely fantastic. And what they discovered was that typically banks ask more or less the same questions every time you open an account. So their whole thesis, whilst they look at social media data, whilst they look at other things, you know, your background... They just ask more questions. And it turns out if you ask a little bit, the the questions you need to ask the most are about financial behavior. When do you get paid? Um, What do you do when you get paid? Uh, Do you struggle to manage your money? And people tend to answer those honestly, and they tend to be really great indicators of whether or not you're going to be a risk or not. So it turns out that uh, we also looked um, at a number of industry stats and, and across the industry level. We found that the UK high street banks for credit card products, out of 10 customers, two will be turned down just because a bank doesn't have enough information about them. But one of those two people, so one in 10, is perfectly credit worthy. So you're turning down one in 10 customers that's perfectly credit worthy just because you didn't ask enough questions. If I'm sitting in a bank and I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, well, that's bad business, especially in the credit card division in which surely you want to be growing right now, whereas, you know, versus a current account business. So things like Air, and there are no other many other products out there like it seem to me as the absolute ultimate no-brainer.
1: I'd love to think that in between all of those questions, it's like, uh, so Simon, what's your favourite colour? Where do you live? What's your favourite movie? Will you default on this loan? Yes. Oh, no. You-
5: yeah. <laughs> well, what is your favourite colour?
0: <laughs> cool. OK, so that's all we've got time for on FinTech Insider News this week. Uh, it just remains for me to thank Monty. Thank you for being with us. Oh, I've learned loads. And of course, Megan, thank you for being back with us. Thank you. Sophie, always good to have you. Likewise. And the regulars, thank you so much. Alrighty, so thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and tell some friends to subscribe if they're into fintech. And don't forget, we'll be at the Innovate Finance Global Summit in April. Fintech Insiders who want to join us can get 30% off tickets with the discount code Insider. Until next time.